The Lord be with you. I did not become a Packers fan in Africa. This is a Rwandan shirt, John, okay? It's from Rwanda. He's texting me like, dude, you sold out. No, I didn't sell out. It's from Rwanda. And here it is in Rwandan. Imana Aguhe Gumugisha. That is the Lord be with you. You can just say, and also with you or whatever. I am, whatever. I bring you greetings. I didn't die in Rwanda. Nobody died. We didn't even get sick. Everything was good. You don't get sick when you don't eat the food, okay? That's kind of the way it works, you know, especially food that might get washed in the water that might be contaminated. So you have to avoid that as much as you possibly can. And, I, you know, that means no salad, no fruit that's been cut up. I figured out the easiest way to fix that <laughs> is to make salad this way. Am I right, guys? Huh? All right? Yeah. All right. Let me tell you about the trip. Uh, we were in Rwanda, in case you're new or visiting, watching on the internet. Welcome. We're glad that you're here watching at, at a service. We're glad that you're here. I, I've been to Africa before. I've got to tell you, this was amazing. We've been to Kenya multiple times. I've been in Nairobi, and there was just no comparison between the country of Rwanda, which is just this little country right in the middle, and all the other places that I've ever been where I've seen poverty. Yeah, there's still poverty, but there's hope, and, and it's amazing. It's just amazing what God has done there, uh, and there's babies everywhere everywhere, of course. There's, there's no trash anywhere in Rwanda. I mean, they just have this pride about themselves. Plastic like Walmart sacks are illegal. Amen. Yeah, man, I know, right? I mean, is there, you, you go to another, especially another third world country like downtown Chicago, and they're like everywhere, right? They're blowing around. They're illegal there. I mean, it's amazing what, what goes on, and poverty is down, and the economy is up, and uh, where they had a million orphans not very long ago, there are now only 1,400 orphans left in the entire country of Rwanda. My, uh, my bracelet says every child deserves a family, and uh, they've been working really hard, and by this time next year, they will be the first orphanage-free country in the world. I mean, that's what's going on in this middle of nowhere in Rwanda. And you've got to remember, guys, this is Rwanda, okay? And I know maybe you weren't paying any attention, and neither was I back in 1994, but if you saw Hotel Rwanda, uh, although, you know, the depiction of the things that went on with the guy and, the, you know, the characters and stuff weren't really accurate, the, the genocide was horrible. This is a country the size of Maryland with 10 million inhabitants and almost a million people were slaughtered by their brothers and their countrymen in a matter of a hundred days. And again, it was 1994. I was already the pastor of this church. I don't know what, I, I didn't know what was going on. You didn't know what was going on. The UN kind of turned their back and, and the, the, the Hutus were killing the Tutsis. And I mean, brutalizing them and torturing them and uh, just this horrible thing. So when you grasp the, the magnitude of this, you know, going to this memorial where they just had to drag 250,000 bodies and bury them at this one place in, in, in Kigali in the main city. When you grasp the magnitude of what went on 19 years ago and you see what's going on now, it makes it even more amazing. Uh, it, it was really mind-boggling. So what happened? Well, 2002, Rick Warren writes The Purpose Driven Life, becomes the most translated 150 languages and best-selling nonfiction book of all time. Past the Bible, nobody sold more books than, than this one book, okay? Fast forward a few years later, the president of Rwanda in 2005 calls Rick Warren and says, hey, could we be the first purpose-driven country? 
And Rick says, well, I don't see why not. And, uh, and Saddleback got involved in, in what's going on over there. And let me just remind you of a scripture for those of you that, that know scripture. If you've never heard this before, this may surprise you. But God promised back in the Old Testament, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And, and so the president of Rwanda called up Rick Warren said, we want, to, we want to do this. How can we do this? And from that time on, Saddleback Church in California has sent 1,200 people on short-term trips to Rwanda to help them figure out how to do the peace plan. And the peace plan is a way to use the local church to do missions. Okay? And the problem with missions a lot in the past, at least for the last 100 years, is missions has been about the white guy riding in and trying to convert everybody and trying to help everybody. And it's all been about, you know, the, the white guy. You know, first it was England and then it was, you know, then it was America. We're going to go fix you. We're going to make everything work. The peace plan is not about that. The peace plan is about planting churches that promote reconciliation. It's about equipping servant leaders. These were all volunteers. Saddleback only has four staff people in Rwanda where all this is going on. We're going to assist the poor. We're going to care for the sick. We're going to educate the next generation. And the, and the young people in Rwanda call themselves the post-genocide generation. And that's what they're all about. You don't ask them whether they were a Hutu or a Tutsi. They it doesn't matter anymore. They are Rwandans and they're moving forward. And so what Saddleback has done is they've gone in to train the local people to do the work. What was also remarkable is that I was with not only government leaders, um, but, but business leaders and church leaders from the Catholic, the head of the Catholic Church, the head of the Episcopal Church, the head of the Anglican Church, the head of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the head of the Baptist Church denomination in that country. Uh, different people from different walks where they're all working together to make this thing happen. Jesus said, you know, by this will all men know you if you have love one for another. And when we see that, that unity across the, the way, then they have a platform to stand on. And so we were in national rallies all around the country of Rwanda. Here's a picture of uh, the youth rally where 6,000 young people gathered. Rick gave them all a personal copy of, their, of his book translated in Rwandan. And honestly, I mean, if you haven't done worship with you know, Africans, you just haven't done worship because there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of jumping and a lot of praising. And I mean, it was the most spirit-filled gathering I've ever been in in my life with 6,000 young people in this stadium and, and just rocking out the worship. It was unbelievable up until the time that the Minister of Youth and Education came out, who was at the gathering, and he was a diminutive little dude. And uh, Rick was so caught up in the spirit, uh, he reached over and grabbed him and gave him a noogie on national television. <laughs> And I finally found a pastor who's less appropriate than me, and it's Rick Warren. I love that. Um, and, you know, hey, it was awesome because we traveled by helicopter. That was cool. I think we ought to do that more often. Um, and, and we had a blast. We got to be with uh, Rick's son, Josh. You know that he lost his son, Matthew, five months ago to suicide. And uh, his son, Josh, his oldest son, was there with us on the trip. And I'll just throw you some pictures of the trip on there so you can see. On my blog, I wrote, I've written a couple of things about this. I would love for you to read it, timharlow.com. Just uh, go on there and read some of the things that, that, that were going on. What I, what I want to tell you is I as I just share a couple of pictures with you, is that, uh, for one thing, if you've heard dumb stuff about Rick Warren, it's dumb stuff. This guy's the real deal. Uh, he made a bazillion dollars off his book, and he could have been sipping Mai Tais on a beach somewhere, but instead, he gave most of it away, and he taught 30 times in eight days in Africa. Kept a schedule that was insane. 
And the other thing I want to tell you is that after seeing God at work in the nation of Rwanda and after becoming more aligned with Saddleback and, and Rick being involved in some projects that I'm working on, uh, things have changed a lot. And, and I just want you, to, I want you to be in prayer for them and I want you to be in prayer for us because I believe I've seen a greater vision of what the church can do in the world. That's honestly what I've seen. So would you just take a minute and pray with me as we, as we think about this? Lord, I pray for Rick and Kay. I pray for them as they're still grieving. And I pray for Josh and Amy and the rest of the family that you'll be with them. And uh, I know they're still struggling. I know that's why he felt like going to Rwanda because that was a place where they understood loss and pain. And, um, and he understood theirs now. And I pray for them. I pray that you'll be with him and keep, keep him strong and keep them strong and, and keep Saddleback being able to lead like they do. And I pray for us, Lord, that you'll be with me and that you'll be with us as we figure out what, what it means to, to allow the church uh, to, in Kenya that we're working with to come to Rwanda and see what's going on and, and to be able to help the churches and missions around the world as we understand things in a new perspective. And I just pray that you'll give us strength, Lord, and keep Satan away. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I also just, uh, you know, I, I want to invite you to go on a missions trip. If you haven't done it, just being in another country is unbelievable. We've got three Kenya trips planned uh, for next year, one in March, one in May, one in June. Short-term trips to Africa. Now, those are crazy ones. Those are a long way away. Um, but if you're interested in that, there's a meeting for you there. And there's also a short-term mission trip training that's going to be going on for any of our trips. I, one of the things that Saddleback has done well is they've gotten their people to go. And when their people go and see what goes on, on, it helps give them a vision, and I really want to encourage you to do that. Go on our website. There's a missions booth out here. You can see all the things that we do. All right, so here's the crazy thing. How many of you have read Purpose Driven Life? Yeah, okay, almost everybody, right? I mean, like 40 million copies, it's ridiculous. So I would encourage you to go back and read it again. I've taught through it here twice. It's just one of those books that you can't really read too much because it's, got, it's simple and it gives you this information on what it is that God wants, that deep down inside we all have a purpose. And I believe that the reason that, that everybody read this book so well and that it sold so well is because, you know, we all know there's a God and we all know there's a purpose. But the problem is a lot of times we don't get to the point where we believe believe it because we don't even believe that God could love us, let alone have a purpose for us. Because we know what we're like, right? We know how many times we've messed up, right? I mean, seriously, if you were God, would you use you? Just, just raise your hand if you agree with me. If I was God, I wouldn't use me, okay? Now turn to your neighbor and say, if I was God, I wouldn't use you either, sucker, okay? Isn't that true? So th this, is, this is what I think the problem is. We can't, we can't figure out our purpose because we can't figure out that God loves us in the first place. So enter Hosea. This is what we've been doing. Pastor Brian did a great job last week getting us started on this, didn't he? Thank you, Brian. That was awesome. We're doing this four weeks in Hosea because it's this great, weird Old Testament story that tells us about the love of God. And I just got to say, uh, I would encourage you to, this is taken from my friend Judd Wilhite's book, Pursued. He is a pastor in Vegas where people really need to grab a hold of grace. And uh, it's a great book. I'd encourage you to download it. Well, while Brian was preaching on this last week, I just want to make you feel better. Bill and I and Denise were in a four-hour Thanksgiving service in the national stadium on national television. What that means is Rick was preaching for an hour, and when you translate into Kenya Rwandan, it takes, it takes two hours for every hour of, of things that are going on. So, I mean, it was so long, and we were sitting right behind the prime minister, so we couldn't even play Angry Birds or anything. There we are, and 
We're like, oh my gosh, when is this going to get over? I'm going to kill myself. But you know what? You are here in your nice little 75-minute service, so just enjoy it. Hosea is about salvation. Hosea means salvation. He's one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And, and here's the story in case you weren't here last week. It's about how much God pursues us, about how he wants to chase us down and tell us that he loves us. Now, it's never easy to be a prophet, okay? It's never easy. God called his prophets to do a lot of crazy things. But when you read Hosea, the beginning of Hosea, you realize this prophet had to go in above and beyond the call of duty. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a prostitute. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you've ever read Hosea before, you remember that, right? That's quite an opening line. Go marry a hooker, okay? This is, and this is not like go marry somebody who used to be a prostitute. It's go marry somebody who is a prostitute. Why would God want his prophet to do this? Next verse. This will illustrate how Israel, the nation of Israel, has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. We talked about this in the story, about how they would keep going back to their other gods and going back to their other gods and going back to their other gods. So God says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an illustration of what's going on here, and I'm going to have my prophet do it. So the prophet Hosea is supposed to go marry a prostitute. Now you've got to understand. I mean, imagine being Hosea. What, what is Hosea feeling? There's no record of it in here. He just obeys. But don't you think Hosea said, Lord, I didn't have this class in seminary. I'm not really sure what you're asking me to do. I mean, what kind of a pastor's wife is a prostitute going to make? Will she know how to play the piano? Can she make German chocolate cake? I mean, come on. <laughs> but like every good prophet, every good prophet, he obeys and he proposes to Gomer the prostitute. I'm not making that up. Her name was Gomer. She's not only a prostitute, she has a dumb name. Her name is Gomer the prostitute. And Gomer says, Shazam! <laughs> I love making jokes that I know only like the older people in the crowd are going to get. Let me, let, me, let me try to give for the younger ones, okay? Okay, so Hosea proposes to Gomer, and Gomer says, Baby, you a song, make me want to roll my windows down. <laughs> what up, Nelly? Right? Okay. She says yes, okay? Because who doesn't want to go from being Gomer the prostitute to Mrs. Prophet? I mean, come on. Of course she says yes. And this is the beautiful picture of God's relationship with us. That he looks at us, and even though we're unfaithful, and even though we're unreliable, and even though we're not good people, he still loves us. God is Hosea, and we are Gomer. And in spite of all the things that we've done, it doesn't matter. God still loves us, and he still wants to be in a relationship to us. So the message message of Hosea is say yes to the dress people that's what it is <laughs> say yes to a relationship with God if you are here and you have never said yes to God you need to understand from this story you need to understand from this story that that God still loves you and that you are not too bad for God Hosea 10:12 says plow up the hard ground of your hearts for now is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. That's what God wants to do. And it's a great story, right? We wish that it would just end there, you know, and the Pretty Woman soundtrack could roll in the background and we could all just kind of go on and live happily ever after. Except you get over to chapter 3 and Gomer's gone wild. Okay? 
literally. I mean, we don't know where she is. We don't even know where she is. There's basically, and he's basically a single dad at this point, and there's all this drama going on. It's like the Jerry Springer show in Hosea because he married Gomer, and he doesn't know what's going on. And they've had these kids, but we realize that, that God told them to name at least one of their kids, Lo Amy, which means not mine. Okay, you know, oh, you have such a beautiful child. Thank you. What's her name? Not mine. <laughs> nice, right? I mean, Hosea doesn't even know where these kids have come from. They don't know. He, there's no paternity test back in this day. He doesn't know if they're his kids because she is so unfaithful. She keeps going back. And what makes it worse is that it seems as though Hosea has fallen in love with Gomer along the way, that he actually cares about her. I mean, at first he's just, you know, like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can do. But, but it really does look like Richard Gere and Julia Roberts at some point in here that it's turned into this, well, I hired you, but, you know, now I love you kind of a thing. So we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and it just gets weirder. The Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. I mean, that's an incredible thing for God to say to somebody, isn't it? Go, go love your wife again, even though she's cheating on you right now. Like, I know she's cheating on you right now because I'm God and she's unfaithful. Now, now I've got to say, this, isn't necess- this is not an illustration of how to handle an unfaithful spouse. Okay? It might be. It might not be. You and God are going to have to figure that out along the way. That's a whole different story. This is an illustration of how much God loves us even when we're this screwed up. And he illustrates it with this next sentence. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Again, it's the same thing. God still loves us even though we have betrayed Him. And He is willing to keep loving us even though we keep betraying Him. And then it gets even weirder because He's even willing to pay to buy us back. Next verse, it just says, So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. I'm like, what is that? Well, It doesn't say in here, but scholars put two and two together and figured out that somehow she's ended up in some kind of sexual slavery thing again. I mean, in a modern day illustration, Hosea does not just have to go to the seedy part of town to find his wife. He has to go to the seedy part of town and pay off her pimp so that he can get her back. And God says, this is how much I love my people. Not only will I take you back, I will pay to bring you back, no matter how bad you are, no matter what you've done. The Bible calls this good news. Right? The Bible calls this the gospel. That's what the whole thing is. And there's an economic term that the Bible uses over and over again called redemption. You may remember we talked about it with Ruth. Obviously, we talk about it a lot in the New Testament. It's an economic word that means to buy back. It just simply means to buy back. I'm going to buy you back. For example, in the New Testament, Romans 3, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by His grace. How? Through the buyback program, through the redemption that came from Jesus Christ. That's how it works. That's how it happened. This is a picture of what Hosea did for Gomer. It's a picture of what Jesus did for us. And maybe this one you should listen to as well. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to understand that. The redemption happened while we were still sinners. Hosea went and bought her back while she was still committing adultery, while she was still unfaithful, while she was still prostituting herself. That's what went on. I need you to understand that. 
when Christ found us, we were not in the palace. We were in the brothel. I don't care where you were. I don't care how old you were. That's where we were. And he willingly paid the price for us to bring us home and allow us to be with him forever. That's what he did. That's grace. And only Jesus was good enough for God. So only the price of Jesus on the cross could be good enough to pay for our sins. And if you keep falling back to the old position, here's why this is really important. When you keep falling back like Gomer did, why, why would Gomer go back to her old life? The, the only way that you could go back to your old life is when you don't really believe that you deserve this new life. That's what I believe. I mean, who in their might mind would want to go back to turning tricks instead of being in a loving relationship with a husband who loves her and her family? I would contend that it's only a person who doesn't really feel worthy of being in this place. This is, what, this is what Satan does. You get to this place and you say yes to the relationship with Jesus. And you say, I want to follow you. I'm going to do this. And then what happens? And there's this little voice inside, right? He says, oh man, you're a former prostitute. Why, would, why do you think you deserve to be married to a prophet? It says to you, he says, oh, don't you remember all the things that you've done? He says to you, this little voice in your head says to you, you know, I know what you did yesterday. I know where you were. I know what you looked at. I know what happened. I know what was in your heart. You don't deserve to be a believer. You don't deserve to be in a church. You don't deserve to be in a relationship with God. And over the course of time, we listen to that voice over and over and over again. And eventually we're just like, yeah, you're right. I might as well just go back here. Because otherwise, why would anybody in their right mind go back to here when they could be in a relationship with a holy God who loves them that much? I believe it's only when we fully understand the grace of God that our lives can really change and we can live the way that He wants us to. But we live that way out of gratitude for Him. Not out of a sense of obligation. It's out of gratitude. And here's why this is important in this room and you people that are watching this on the net and watching wherever you are, this is why this is important. Because a lot of you said yes to a relationship with Jesus at some point along the way. Okay, last week Brian talked about how, you know, Gomer was a prostitute and Hosea married her. But this week we're on to the part that he married her, they had kids together, and she went back to the other part of town. The, the illustration for us here is that a lot of us, maybe at an early age, made a decision for Jesus. Maybe you got baptized, maybe you confirmed your, your baptism, maybe you made your first communion, you filled out a card, you walked down an aisle, you prayed a prayer, you did something so that you could have a relationship with Jesus. But you've been with other lovers since then, and, and you can't feel like you can do anything anymore because you keep getting sucked back into this life. And I think the only reason you get sucked back into this life here is because you don't really believe that God loves you enough to keep you in this life here. You see, God like going to the dentist, okay? Right? I'll just, be, I'll just make a confession to you. I don't go to the dentist as often as I can. I apologize to any of you in the dental field right now. I just don't, I don't go as often as I ought to. I, I really don't. And, and I don't know if this happens to you, but I tend to avoid going to the dentist. And I know that I'm supposed to go to the dentist, but, I'm a, but, but I've got this problem when I go to the dentist. What's going to happen is he's going to tell me, I'm worried that he's going to tell me that I don't floss enough, Right? Does anybody really floss? I just want to know. Show of hands. Okay. No, just for the record, if you're watching on the internet, nobody raise their hands. Nobody flosses. There's none that floss. No, not one. That's not going to happen. Okay? 
So what I do is I get, I get you know, like a, a week out from the appointment. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to go to the dentist. I better start flossing, right? Do you do that? But I know it's too late, so I, I like put it off, and I don't want to go, and I, I, I feel really guilty, okay? And, and you know the same thing because you do the same thing. And I'm afraid I'm going to show up, and he's going to yell at me, and he's going to say, you know what? Your teeth are horrible. We're going to pull them all out, and you're going to get dentures. But I finally went to the dentist a couple of weeks ago because I had a filling fall out and I had no choice. Okay. And you know what? My dentist was really, really nice. And they loved me in spite of my bad flossing patterns. And my teeth feel better. And now I don't have to dig stuff out of that hole with a toothpick every time I eat. And everything is a lot better. And I don't know why I put it off as long as I did. I really ought to go every six months like I'm supposed to because it's a good thing. But I conjure up in my mind because I, you know, I'm in this life here. I conjure this thing up in my mind that I'm afraid I'm not supposed to go. I don't want to go because you know, I, feel, I feel guilty. Okay? And I don't know what's happened to you. Maybe your church growing up made you feel guilty. Maybe you just knew you were going to show up at church and the pastor was going to say, you know what, you, you, you need to do this and you need to do that. You already know you're not doing it. You need to floss more. You know, you need to do this and you're just going to feel guilty. So you started avoiding it. Okay, and I understand that. Maybe that's how your church made you feel, but that's not God. Okay, God, God wants your heart. He wants you to live here and He's going to love you no matter how bad you floss or how often you floss. He's going to love you. And the reason that Parkview is a come-as-you-are church is because not just because we want it that way. It's because God wants it that way. God wants you to come and to be in a relationship with Him. That's why this whole thing is going on. So please listen to Ephesians 2 really slowly as I read it and try to let it sink in. Because if you said yes to Jesus and you're back in this life again right now or you're having struggles because you're afraid you don't want to be back in a relationship with God because you don't think you deserve it, listen to this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. See, a lot of you grew up thinking, you know what, if I could just be good enough, right? If I could just work myself in, I'll be okay. Well, you know what the problem with that is? You turn into a Pharisee, and you start saying, look how good I am. Jesus hated the Pharisees. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's your purpose. Your purpose is there because God loves you, and it's never going to go together unless you can understand this. That's why we call this thing a relationship and not a religion. That's why the illustration was a marriage. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Marriage is a commitment. That's what it's supposed to be. Almost 30 years for me. There's the wedding picture, ladies and gentlemen. Rocking the white tux and the Magnum PI mustache, was I not? Um, this is almost 30 years. You know how we made it almost 30 years? I forgave a little and she forgave a lot. That's how we made it for 30 years. And how are you going to make it anywhere? It's a relationship. It's a give and take. Pastor Judd in his book talks about the problem is that a lot of people see that our relationship with God is more like a mortgage than a marriage. He said, you, you, you know, when, you, when you, you first get married, you eventually get a mortgage. And when you get your first mortgage, it's completely different than your marriage. You sign all these documents, these legal documents. You know, you don't even read them after a while. You start signing them because there's like a stack this big. And you don't even care. And you enter into an arrangement with a bank. And, and, and there's this arrangement where you know you have to pay this or you're going to be in trouble. 
If your marriage is that way, it's not a marriage. It's basically just a contract as well. Marriage is based on the fact that I'm going to have unconditional love for you and you're going to have unconditional love for me till death do us part. And when people see their relationship with God as a mortgage, it's like, okay, I know you don't want me to cuss as much and I know, you know, you want me to be pure and I know you want me to pray and read the Bible. I know you want me to give generously, so I'm going to do it so that you don't get mad at me, so that you're okay with me. That's a mortgage, okay? However, if I'm in a relationship, in a marriage with God, why wouldn't I want to read his Bible? (laughs) I mean, those are his words. They're going to help me. Why wouldn't I want to pray? I don't feel guilty when I don't. I just want to pray because I want to hear from God. Why wouldn't I want to give when I feel how much God has done for me? Why don't I want to let the Holy Spirit come inside of me and make me a different person so I'm not always dragged back into this lifestyle? That's the difference between a marriage and a mortgage. It's saying I do. It's saying a commitment. That's what it is. And that's the commitment that God has made to you. So that's how it's supposed to work. You don't give so that you can get something. You don't give because of obligation. You give because of what God has done for you. You don't do any of those things because of it you do it because you love God and you can relax and you're not finishing you know the minimum requirements that need to happen and you're not being worn out by religion I don't want to show of hands but I know there are a lot of people in this room right now that would say you know what I spent a lot of my life in a mortgage relationship with God and it was exhausting can I invite you over here to the marriage to where Jesus said come unto me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest doesn't that sound good that's the message of Hosea marriage is never perfect I found some funny wedding pictures this week. You, you know, you, the wedding, you always want it to be perfect, but eventually the dog's going to pee on your dress. <laughs> right? Um, eventually, you know, the flower girl's going to put her hands over her ear because the music sucks or whatever. Uh, eventually, uh, your fun best man is going to bring his iguana and his pet snake to your wedding. Uh, choose better. Um, but this video is probably the ultimate. Watch this. You love him. Comfort him. Honor and keep him, in sickness and in health. And forsaking all others, be faithful to him, as long as you both shall live. The rings, please. done two of my daughter's weddings and there weren't that big of a screw up but I'm thinking for Becca we got to do something dumb like that because the, the, the beauty of that is that's the reality you're getting into right I mean you're, you're you try to have this perfect wedding but you're never going to have a perfect marriage I mean, you might as well have a whole bunch of stuff blow up at your wedding because that's the reality of what this thing is going to be like and that's the reality of your relationship with God God's message to us through Hosea is simple and yet it's profound Stop running away from me. 
I love you unconditionally. I'm going to pursue you unconditionally. And some of you are like, you know what? I, I, I felt God. You know, sometimes I feel God every once in a while. He's calling to me. I can hear His voice from the brothel. And I know that He's out there. And I know that, that He's calling. I just want to say, stop running. Just, just walk outside and let Him come and rescue you. He's already paid the price for you. Some of you are like, Matt, I have never heard God calling. I don't even believe it. I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, let me remind you of the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want to get down to the end. It says, surely goodness and mercy is how we all memorize it. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was the King James. Now, I love the NIV. Surely your goodness and your unfailing love will pursue me. All the days of my life. God is never going to stop chasing you. He's stalking you. Okay? And He's never going to stop. David told us that way back in the Psalms. That's who He is. And and, and you may be like, well, I feel hypocritical turning back to Him. Listen to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a huge atheist in England. Became one of the most prolific Christian writers of our generation. He talked about his conversion. He talked about how God chased him down. He calls God the hound of heaven who chased him down. He said, I'd always wanted to, above all things, not be interfered with. Maybe you can relate. I wanted to call my soul my own. You must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who so earnestly I desired not to meet. But that which I greatly feared had come upon me at last. And finally, I had to give in. And I had to admit that God was God. And I knelt and prayed. He said, perhaps the most reluctant convert in all of England. And I did not see then what is now the most shining of things. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. That's in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says, what I did not understand is that even if I was the most reluctant convert in the world, even if he was stalking me and I finally said, okay, I give up, that God was still going to take that. Through Hosea, God is saying, look, then and now, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, I want you to be in a relationship with me and I'm going to chase you until you do it. So stop running. Grace is not, I go to church, I say my prayers, I try to be a good person. That is not grace. You know what grace is? Grace is a husband who goes to the other side of town to find his wife who's a hooker and he brings her back home. And he pays whatever the price. That's what grace is. Grace is the God of the universe giving up his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Nobody ever would do that for you. Nobody ever could do that for you. That's why we call this thing amazing grace. Because we're Gomers and God is Hosea and he will not stop pursuing us. So no matter what, please, Stop running. Coming back from Africa reminded me with the grace story of a, of a moment 
back in the 80s, in the late 80s, when South Africa became free. I mean, it's, it's hard to think about what went on in other countries because it feels like it's been, you know, 170 years since we had crazy things going on in our country. But South Africa became free in the 80s, and, and so they decided to put together uh, a concert in Wembley Stadium in, in London. 70,000 fans there, like one of those all-day Lollapalooza kind of things. And all the 80s bands were there, and the 80s rock fans, you know I mean? Guns N' Roses were there, Dire Straits were there, P Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, everybody was at this thing. For 12 hours, they just rocked the place out. And, you know, of course, there was drinking and the smoking and the drugging and the everything else that was going on at a, at a rock celebration like this. But the, but the people who put this thing together had decided to do something a little edgy and a little crazy to end the concert, at the end of 12 hours of rock, at the end of 12 hours of this massive celebration when everybody's pretty well toasted, they had invited an African opera singer named Jesse Norman to come out on stage at the very end and sing Amazing Grace. I mean, it made sense. It was the freedom from apartheid. It was, it was the freedom for these South Africans. It made sense, but it didn't because, you know, what a contrast. And Jesse Norman came out with no instrumentation, one lone spotlight, one lone African singer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And a remarkable thing happened. 70,000 fans sang along. Jesse Norman said afterwards she had no idea what power had descended on Wembley Stadium that night, but I think I know what it was. I think it was grace. When grace falls upon a person, when God speaks to you, you can't help but understand that it is amazing. And if you will open the door for a relationship with God, it will fall on you right now. Maybe it got buried in there somewhere. Maybe you've gone back to the old life. I don't know what it is. When you understand this grace and how amazing it is that God sent His only Son, that you are so valuable to Him that He sent His Son to die for you on a cross because He wanted to buy you back redemption. That is amazing grace. We're going to give you a chance to celebrate that or even accept that as we commune together right now. God, I thank you for amazing grace. And um, I think for some of us, the longer we're believers, we forget about it just because we get it. Maybe we're doing okay and we know we sin, but we know it's okay and we know we're covered and, and we kind of forget how special it is. There's another category of people in here that, that bought into it a long time ago and then just didn't feel worthy of it and walked back into their old life. And then again, there are people in here who've never said yes to the relationship. For all of us, as we take communion right now, will you help us to remember how amazing grace is? And for those who have never said yes to you, will you just help them, even if they're the most reluctant convert in all of the USA, to humbly submit to you just a little bit right now and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I give up. You're pursuing me. I know you're pursuing me. I give up. I accept. For the rest of us, we'll remember the price that you paid and we will celebrate your amazing grace right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.